I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When the American colonists fought a war to free themselves from the political control of distant British oligarchs, what was clearly a war of independence somehow became known as the American Revolution. But for many low-income farmers and yeomen, it was anything but a revolution. Instead of being ruled by far-off oligarchs, they rose up in the Shays and Risky rebellions because they were still being ruled by oligarchs. Only on this side of the Atlantic. The economy was then, and some say still, in the exclusive hands of aristocrats, the top 1%. Populist candidates like Trump, who was a fake populist, and Bernie Sanders appealed to people who, like the uprisings in the late 18th century, are angry that this government is not our government. It is working to make sure ever more riches flow to the already fabulously wealthy. While both parties have long histories of most members of Congress and candidates for president acquiescing in this established system of economic inequality, Trump has clearly stepped on the accelerator of their big, expensive cars. Our guest today, Colin Gordon, professor of history at University of Iowa, observes that the Trump administration didn't invent the policies that redistribute wealth and income to the top but it has doubled down on them characteristic, in characteristically cruel and petty ways, end of quote. On this show, we're going to look at the economic realities Trump has brought us. There is widely accepted belief by Republicans that as much of a shocking creep Trump is, well, at least the economy has been great under his administration and has achieved widespread, meaningful improvements to the benefit of all Americans. Colin Gordon, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Happy to be here. Colin Gordon is a professor of history at the University of Iowa. He's the author of, most recently, Growing Apart, A Political History of American Inequality, and Citizen Brown, Race, Democracy, and Inequality in the St. Louis Suburbs. His new article is titled simply, Inequality in the Trump Era, which deserves talking about. He writes, this inequality is a political project, a carnival of unfettered finance, underfunded public goods, and unrelenting attacks on the security, dignity, and political power of working Americans that is now almost a half century old. The Trump administration did not invent these policies, but has doubled down on them in characteristically cruel and petty ways. That's what we'll be talking about. Gordon published a series of essays at Dissent Magazine, which I highly recommend, under the banner of Our Inequality. The overarching argument following the work of a generation of institutional and labor economists was that the dramatic growth in economic inequality since the 1970s was not some unfortunate symptom of globalization or technological change, but was essentially a political choice. I guess the question is, doesn't the process of globalization itself, just of its nature, necessarily result in a dramatic growth in economic inequality? 
How has globalization affected worldwide economic inequality and what political choices were made? A lot of questions there, Colin. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're certainly right that as a background condition, uh, globalization sort of raises the stakes, raises the pressure on uh, on uh, national uh, capital and national working classes. Uh, and it certainly does, uh, at least potentially, uh, create conditions under which, you know, money can slide around on a sort of frictionless world at the expense of of uh, working people in any country. But, you know, the the argument that globalization in and of itself yields inequality, I think, you know, flies in the face of the fact that uh, in our era of globalization, you know, since, say, the, the early 1970s, the trajectory of inequality in individual countries has been vastly disparate. I mean, the United States, uh, Great Britain, to a degree Canada, have seen uh, much wider growth of inequality than almost all their democratic uh, peers. So clearly policy choices within the context of globalization or within the context of technological change make a big difference. Interesting. So globalization's effects can vary country to country. And, you know, a lot of uh, countries are involved, the uh, European Union most obviously. And, And I... I wonder, I mean, we've gotten the impression that there are a few uh, moneyed powers like the World Bank and, and others who really call the shots and that they dictate what globalization is. Have, how is it that other countries don't uh, do it that way, implement it in that manner? And are there other alternatives that have been available to globalization, which isn't necessarily of itself totally a bad thing? No, I mean, you know, I mean, globalization, you know, as as a as a term, as a concept, is just is a little like the weather. I mean, you can have good weather and bad weather. Uh, it's going to happen regardless. I think, uh, you know, there's not much there's not much digging in uh, against a world which is uh, more interconnected, uh, uh, in which migration of, of uh, money, people, uh, goods uh, flows more easily. Right. But you know, as has always been the case. Uh, national uh, economies and national political systems set the terms of their participation uh, in global markets. And mm. you can do in such a way that, you know, you sort of uh, embrace globalization and drop all conceivable regulations. You can uh, choose your trading partners. You can choose the terms under which you trade. I mean, much of what uh, the impact of much of what we call uh, globalization um, is, in fact, the evasion of uh, regulations and rules that are in place. Uh, I think that's an important lesson of uh, Gabriel Zuckman's new book on on tax evasion. Uh, that globalization, you know, is not the wild, wild west. Uh, it is a system like any political economic system that has rules, and we pick what those rules are. <laughs> and certainly one of the uh, things that uh, makes Trump Trump is not playing by the rules. And I'm sure there are other people as well. I mean, uh, there have been, uh, there's been a long uprising in France right now against uh, globalization led by what the people there see as a, you know, top 1% for the benefit of them and, and not other people. But it can be done otherwise. That's, that's interesting to know so that it's not necessarily there, but it's, there are rules and regulations and uh, 
there are those political powers that uh, just thrive on breaking rules and and uh, doing away with uh, regulations. So that that's an interesting point. But I often hear it say that you know from from Republicans that well Trump has some weird personality traits that they don't like. But the Dow Jones industrials are up. Unemployment is down. What is the economic reality for working people aged 18 to 24. They, the, the, the Trump supporters say, you know, Trump's a little weird, but the economy is humming along. It's in good shape. People are doing better. What's, what's the reality? I mean, I think it's a long time. It's been a long time since serious economists treated aggregate measures like the Dow Jones and the uh, gross unemployment rate as a serious index of how the economy is doing. I mean, unemployment is, I think, uh, uh, a very good example. I mean, we do have, you know, historically low and sustained unemployment rates, but we also have glacial wage growth in this economy, uh, which just simply points to the fact that, you know, unemployment generates economic prosperity only when it's accompanied by the institutions that give workers bargaining power, like a high minimum wage and uh, access to labor unions. But what we've seen, you know, since 2009 is a sustained recovery in employment that has not redounded to the benefit of uh, working people in any part of the country. So, and it's also, I believe, true that unemployment figures are, don't necessarily include those people who have given up looking for work and are, you know, chronically unemployed but uh, you're right. Yeah. So, so if you if you want an index of of full employment of of the degree to which people are engaged in the economy, the labor force participation rate is a much better indication uh, than the unemployment rate because you're quite right. The unemployment rate measures only those who are actively looking for work and unable right. to find jobs. Right. But in fact, labor force participation has dropped off uh, since the onset of the Great Recession and has not recovered. Now, what would you say if you, you know, got into a discussion with people who say, yeah, Trump is pretty weird, but the economy's in so much better shape. He's done a great job for the economy. What would you say? Well, uh, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that question. I mean, uh, one it sort of continues along the lines that we were already talking about. That is, uh, you know, get behind the aggregate statistics and see how the economy is delivering uh, prosperity and security to those in the bottom half of the distribution. Right. And, uh, and, and by that measure, the economy is performing pretty weakly. Um, you know, you have your uh, lowest unemployment rates uh, in the country are in small cities of the upper Midwest where the wages are among the lowest in the country. That is, you have a low unemployment rate because people are carrying two or three jobs um, in order to uh, provide for their families on what's being paid. The second part of the question, sure. I, I think, which is just as important, is, you know, however we judge the uh, performance of the economy, how much does Trump actually have to do with it? Right. You know, the Trump administration has, uh, you know, on its side of the ledger, one major piece of economic legislation, which was the tax cuts, right. uh, 2016, 2017, and all of the research on those has shown quite clearly that the only yield is a dramatic increase in the deficit. Yeah, 
that is, you know, and there used to be all these deficit hawks out there, the, the conservatives saying we have to reduce the deficit, and you hear nothing from that anymore. We hear the term gilded age, which is defined as uh, a period of U.S. history in the late 1800s noted for political corruption, financial speculation, and the opulent lives of wealthy industrialists and financiers. Now, I don't know about industrialists anymore, but is it an exaggeration to see the current moment as another gilded age? And if so, in, in what ways? I mean, you look at the opulent lives and how that's being celebrated and, uh, you know, people wearing glittering uh, uh, jewelry just as publicly as they can. And how, how similar are we to that other gilded age? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, to draw comparisons across a span of, of uh, more than 100 years. Um, because as you point out, you know, with your comment about the industrialists and the robber barons, that the basis of our economy is very different. The basis of consumption is very different. The aspirations that people have uh, uh, are, are very different from one to the era. But, you know, if you look at the larger uh, sort of statistical picture, like what in terms of what's the, the share of income going to the top 1% or the top 10%, uh, what's the share of the population that belongs to labor unions, um, it does look very similar, um, and it, it looks very similar in terms of both economic outcomes, um, but also in terms of the sort of uh, you know unholy alliance of, of uh, uh, large money in politics. And and I I wonder how many people get this really? How many people? I mean, you can look at the numbers and see that uh, there's a great deal of economic inequality, and we'll look at some of those numbers. But I wonder if this moves people you know people have talked for example for years about getting campaign spending under control frankly i don't think that issue moves people all that much although with citizens united it has certainly made it a lot worse but i i just wonder if people get that uh this tremendous economic inequality is a real issue that they care about what's your sense of it out there in iowa um yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to put your finger on because, um, I mean, I do think uh, that people are upset by uh, the degrees of political and uh, economic inequality. I think do think that people are uh, dismayed uh, at the uh, very limited rewards uh, that flow to uh, wor- working families uh, that work hard and, and in terms of their, uh, their share of national income and their share of national prosperity. But I also, you know, I also think it's important uh, to note that, you know, what what you're characterizing as a sort of new gilded age is accompanied by a very powerful sort of political culture, yes. um, which uh, hammers people uh, with the notion that, you know, the economy is doing well. If you're not, it's your failure, uh-huh. uh, or that, you know, those who are uh, running away uh, with um, all the wealth of the t- and income at the top end of the distribution. Um, have done so uh, have done so by sheer uh, uh, genius yeah, or yeah. Uh, ability or uh, skill coming up with a great idea. And so, you know, the, in the abstract, I think most people don't uh, necessarily resent uh, what's been accumulated by a Jeff Bezos or a, or a Mark Zuckerberg or uh, you know a music uh, um, mogul or that sort of thing. Uh huh. 
Yeah, I'm not sure, but I mean, certainly that is what one particular candidate has been talking about for the last, oh, 50 years or so, Bernie Sanders, uh, the, the economic problem. And he does seem to be resonating with at least young people. We will see as time goes on. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about inequality in the Trump era. Our guest today is Colin Gordon, a professor of history at the University of Iowa, who's written about uh, the history of American inequality uh, quite a bit. And I've always found it curious, as a uh, former uh, candidate myself, that such a large percentage of workers near the bottom of the income scale are some of the fiercest defenders. For example, is it not rare to hear people say, well, I mean, it is not rare for people to say, well, rich people earn their wealth. You work hard, you're smart, you're creative. Why shouldn't you be able to keep all the rewards, the top 0.01%? You know, I wonder what defines that. And in recent times under Trump, how much has their wealth increased? And is it not as a result of them being more productive and working harder and having better ideas? And, you know, what's what's wrong with getting extremely wealthy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in that question. I mean, you know, part of it, which you know, my uh, uh, colleague Dean Baker has, has hammered away at for years, uh, is the degree to which uh, um, you know a lot of the money that's being made in sectors like tech uh, and healthcare uh, and others uh, rests uh, on really substantial public investment uh, in research, and so the rewards. Uh, that are going there are, in fact, you know, being are um, uh, you know public goods that are being hoarded and, and uh, in, in some respects uh, stolen. It is a, it's a mistake in that sense, I think, to to think of uh, you know a, a, a technological innovation or a healthcare innovation as sort of dropping out of the sky as being, mm-hmm. as being the uh, the work of of uh, one brilliant woman uh, or man. Mm-hmm. But I also think. Um, you know uh, that the you know the political culture of this free market economy is very powerful, and that um, you know there is a tendency, and they're not entirely uh, sort of systematic or well thought out, but a tendency nevertheless to uh, cling to the idea that people deserve their wealth because it's a way of clinging to the idea that uh, that you too can get ahead right. if you. Uh, you know, have a good idea uh, or uh, breakthrough innovation. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice myth. It's a very reassuring myth. It's held us together for a long time. But but you're right. I mean, Einstein wasn't alone. He had a lot of competitors. The Wright brothers had a lot of competitors. It goes on and on and on. And you know, Jeff Bezos and those guys. Th- there have been, as some people you know have have recognized that they are standing on the shoulders of others. But Myth seems to take precedent over reality quite a bit, and uh, you know pe- people like the the image of uh, you know some amazing person making a whole lot of money. And you're right, hey, that could happen to me. That could happen to me. In other countries, they have a sense working class solidarity. Not so much here. You know the the idea that uh, rugged individualism, I can do it myself, but the results of it on the actual economy. That's another question. And, you know, of course, there was the economic meltdown of 2008 and 2009. And conventional wisdom is that we've experienced a real and widespread recovery and that Trump's policies have been an important part of that. What's the reality there? What sectors of the economy have actually benefited? What's the, what's the reality of the so-called recovery? 
I mean, the re- I mean, you know, the recovery uh, again bears uh, very little has very little to do with Trump's economic policies. It was well underway before uh, um, uh, Trump was elected. Indeed, you know, we were pretty much out of the out of the recession in terms of aggregate employment numbers uh, by the time Trump was elected. Uh, he has one signal uh, accomplishment in economic policy, which is a tax bill that uh, economists on both ends of the spectrum um, have identified as contributing absolutely nothing to economic growth. That is the old sort of, you know, trickle-down argument, which sure, accompanied right. this tax cut as it does all others, mm-hmm. uh, has absolutely no uh, substance to it uh, whatsoever. And so the net result of... Uh, recovery under conditions where bargaining power for ordinary working families is extremely weak, and uh, tax and other uh, regulatory policies are um, uh, working to the benefit of the very wealthy, is that the, you know, 90, 95% of of the net benefit of the recovery has flowed to the top end of the income distribution. And uh, somehow people think that's okay. And we got to talk about that 2017 tax cut. I mean, the idea, a big tax cut, has such a nice ring to it. After all, everybody hates taxes, right? But how much of that went to the poorest 60% of taxpayers? And I do find it interesting whenever I've looked at any kind of numbers at all, the people who live paycheck to paycheck uh, and can't, couldn't come up with $400 if they had to. It's just, it's kind of surprising. I, you know, I didn't know it was that bad. And so when we say poorest 60% of taxpayers, that's, that's a large group. And so how much of that tax cut went to them, how much to foreign investors, and what happened to the tax rate of the 400 richest Americans? Let's, you know, take the tax cut under a microscope here. Professor, thank you. Well, I mean, so by one estimate, uh, you know, the, the tax cut in the, in the first full year, first full, full year was in effect, um, cost us about $300 billion in revenue. That is money we didn't collect. That, that, uh, about only about forty billion of that uh, was left in the pockets of those in the bottom sixty percent of the distribution. Uh, the big cuts uh, came for those at the very top, and they came in the corporate rate, which is now you know hovering around six or seven percent. It's it's uh, a minuscule uh, share of federal revenues. And, you know, as, as I argue uh, in, in my piece in dissent, it's not really just about uh, distribution or maldistribution of uh, tax cuts and the revenues that, uh, that flow from them. But what are we not doing with the money we're not collecting? In, and, you know, in this sense, I think the, um, you know, the uh, sort of irony of the deficit hawks is no irony whatsoever because the Trump administration is playing the same game that uh, uh, Republicans have played uh, since the age of Reagan. That is, they're starving the beast. They're uh, intentionally contributing to the deficit so they can turn around uh, on day two and say, oh, my God, look at the deficit. We have to cut and then, you know, get your poison, food stamps, uh, uh, Medicare, Social Security, and the like. Yeah, it's amazing how how that has worked often so well because it's hard. You know, when you look at defense spending, Nobody, I mean, most Americans, I think, you know, really, really want a strong defense. And so it's like, you can't touch that. You can't touch that. But there's so much waste there that that could be done. But just in terms of, you know, there's the spending of the money, 
which, as you say, we're down quite a bit. That the government doesn't have the revenue that it used to have, but there's the the taxation itself, the the uh, the structure of it. And I I believe in the 1950s, a time of widespread economic security for at least for white Americans, and a very large and strong middle class. Corporate taxes were much higher than they are now. It was a great economy, as you write. Trump promised the cuts would be rocket fuel for the economy and pay for themselves a new employment investment, end of his quote. Tell us, please, how that promise turned out. How has the economy been affected by that tax cut? And what about the corporate tax rate now? How many uh, profitable corporations pay, like, no taxes at all? Well, there's really, I mean, two issues on. I mean, you know, one is the paper rate, one is the real rate. Um, And... You know, there's a very powerful uh, argument in this country at, at both the state and the federal level that, oh, my God, you know, uh, business taxes are high. Because, you know, on paper, particularly at the state level, some of our corporate taxes uh, uh, do look uh, higher than those uh, of our peers. But the reality is, is you have to look at what people actually pay once you factor in all, all the uh, tax credits and deductions and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And what you see, you know, both federally in terms of corporate income taxes, but also in a state like Iowa, is, you know, the big companies are not just not paying taxes, but they're getting net refunds mm. from the state as they cash in these uh, refundable tax credits. Wow. So... Um, you know, uh, evasion, whether uh, you know, legal, uh, semi-legal, or, or outright uh, um, illegal, is is extremely common at the, in the higher brackets uh, and in the corporate rate. And you know, if you if you take the, the the Trump tax cut, you know, at its word, which like all tax cuts of the modern era was was sold on the premise that um, the money you give up in revenues will be made up by increased economic activity, uh, then clearly it's a, it's a dramatic failure. I mean, in order, in order for the Trump tax cuts to, ma- to have maintained revenue through increased economic growth, they would have had, contributed, would have had to contribute a, uh, about 7% growth to the economy. Wow. And the estimates of the Congressional Research Service are that the contribution of the tax cut to growth of the economy was 0.3%. 0.3%. Yeah, it's just it's not having that effect, and and I remember as as uh, when it comes to the old idea of uh, tax cuts for the rich benefit everybody, uh, as Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. It just it doesn't work. I don't know if you remember those guys, brilliant uh, political philosophers. Uh, yeah. you write that at the national level, the Trump administration has done its part to erode the material security of working Americans and extend near dictatorial power of employers over workers and working conditions. That's a that's a big uh, change, a big effect. Say more about this, please, giving them near dictatorial powers over their employers, uh, employees. So, uh, yeah, in that, in that part of the essay, I'm really drawing on a brilliant new book by the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson called Private Government. Um, it's a series of essays where, where, you know, her basic insight is that we put up with violations of our basic democratic rights, a democratic voice and vote and, and representation uh, in the workplace that we would never put up with in any other context. And uh, following this, you know, she, she dubs 
places of employment as as private governments that are basically run as uh, as dictatorships. Now, what's sort of exaggerating that is two things. One is the virtual collapse of uh, collective bargaining in the private sector, yes. which is now you know under seven percent nationally and scraping at two percent in some states. And so, basically, no one in the private sector belongs to a labor union. But it also is uh, being driven by you know the way in which our uh, labor laws are uh, enforced or not enforced. I mean, the National Labor Relations Board now tilts heavily in favor of employers. Right. Uh, and so despite the fact that, you know, the rate of work stoppages is rising steadily uh, in this economy, uh, the rulings of the National Labor Board uh, almost never favor uh, workers in a substantive sense. And, you know, in both uh, in, at the federal level following the Janus decision and in a a number of states like Iowa and Wisconsin and Indiana and others, the small advantage held by private, by public sector workers uh, has been uh, eroded as well. So, you know, it's it's the situation is not a pretty one, and and it's uh, largely uh, driving, uh, you know, the bigger picture that we've been talking about uh, for the last little while, which is why does the recovery not benefit uh, working people? And I think it's, you know, the absence of this sort of democratic foothold, democratic voice in the economy uh, that is really behind that. Yeah, there are some people like Bernie Sanders and others who have called for more economic democracy. But uh, we seem to be moving in the opposite direction, uh, certainly under Trump. And uh, there's obviously less uh, uh, union participation. I'm not quite sure why that is the case, that people just kind of accept what they're given, that they don't have uh, a lot of options. And I don't know, people have been convinced that uh, taking to the streets and being out there isn't powerful, but it is. And and there's been, uh, people are buying that, uh, unfortunately. And uh, old-fashioned uh, economic and political conservatives, I don't know what to call Trump. He's not conserving anything. But the old-fashioned, traditional economic and political conservatives have long argued for devolving power to the states. What has happened in states regarding bargaining rights and labor standards in the last few years? Yeah, the, I mean, devolution to the states has been, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty nasty process, starting with uh, social welfare policy in the 1990s and uh, more directly with labor policy in the in the 2000s. But it's clearly, you know, in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons, the right has found a sort of sweet spot in state politics and has used, uh, you know, a trifecta control of legislators in state, states like uh, Iowa uh, and Wisconsin to, uh, to push through fairly dramatic change. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, this is, of course, uh, following a script uh, written by ALEC and other uh, national yes, groups. Indeed. Uh, organized specifically in order to sort of have that influence at the state level. And, you know, in Scott Walker's Wisconsin, in uh, Terry Branstead's Iowa, all of this occurred uh, in settings where, you know, legislators did not run on this agenda. And, you know, once in power, uh, uh, simply pushed through uh, a set of policies, um, you know, often, often directly... Uh, in opposition to what the majority of their state residents uh, yeah. were in favor of. And a big part of this was sort of fundamentally uh, undermining the sort of regulatory protections and the bargaining power 
of uh, working men and women in the public and private sector. So we've seen uh, the passage of right-to-work law in a number of states. We've seen the gutting of public sector bargaining in a number of states. We've seen really draconian uh, cuts to workers' compensation uh, in a number of states. Um, And, you know, I I, I fear we're going to see more of it uh, Mm. in the legislative session that's just beginning. Uh, it could well be. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about uh, uh, inequality in the Trump era. Our guest is uh, Professor of History, University of Iowa, Carlin Gordon, who's written a number of books about inequality in, Amer- in the American economy. And uh, ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Committee. Not everybody's heard of them, but when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, Boy, we sure knew about them. Who who are they, and how much power do they have? It's amazing to me how they get like this cookie cutter legislation. They have, you know, legislation one size fits all, and they just fill in the name of the state. What do we know about Alec and their impact on this economic inequality? So Alec has been around uh, for a long time. Um, they they have a, uh, a companion organization that now focuses on on uh, local and county level government. Oh, great. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's in some respects a very uh, uh, well-thought-out project of the right, uh, funded largely by the Koch brothers. Uh-huh. Uh, what a surprise. And by, um, you know, uh, uh, corporate memberships. Sure. Uh, yeah. And you're, you're exactly right. They proceed with this sort of cookie-cutter legislation. They say, well, you know, what, does, what would a workers' compensation law look like that, that posed no burden to business? And then... Uh, you know, they pass it in Arkansas, and they and they take out Arkansas, and they pass the same thing in Iowa, and they're really taking advantage of the fact uh, that in most of our states, in all but the most populous states like New York and say California, um, our state legislatures are not uh, professional legislative right. bodies. They don't uh, they don't meet more than uh, once a year. In some cases, not even that often. Um, the um, Alec and its and its allies have uh, managed not only to, you know, take over a lot of the legislative writing at the state level, oh, yeah. but they've managed to sort of weasel in and take over the task of training state legislatures, mm. uh, state legislators upon their election. So that you have these right-wing groups which pose as, as sort of, uh, you know, nonpartisan public affairs training organizations that say, okay, now you're a state legislator in Nebraska. Here's what you need to do. Uh. You know, and the laundry list is uh, as expected. It's uh, slashing regulation, undermining workers' rights, and, you know, one uh, very important sort of push uh, by ALEC and by conservative states over the last five years has been to preempt the ability of smaller governments, counties, and and cities to do anything progressive at all. So most states now uh, prohibit uh, states or uh, counties and municipalities from having a higher minimum wage, from having family leave apologies, from banning plastic bags, from having any gun or tobacco control, from putting a tax on soda. All of these things are just ruled out of bounds. And, of course, Reagan was a big proponent of devolving power to the states, and now we're seeing the effects. And legislators, as you say, they're not professionals. They, they rely, I mean, uh, legislative services here in New Hampshire was pretty darn good. But, you know, when, when somebody walks in, uh, here's a, a complete... A uh, piece of legislation, you just go with it. It's like a gift to them. It makes it so much easier. What are the things you talk about? And, and I think the important, the, the important point here is, you know, if the argument that devolution and smaller government was better, then we would 
we would trust our state and local governments and give them the resources to solve problems. But the reality is that, you know, the Republicans have, again, found that sweet spot at the state level, which is where they're interested in uh, devolution of power from the federal level, but also putting the clamp on smaller units of government. And so there's no philosophical consistency whatsoever. They're they're really just looking for uh, the point at which they can uh, accomplish what they're looking to accomplish. Put the small end of the wedge in at the most convenient place. Uh, and never mind the uh, philosophical consistency. Eh, out the window. You mentioned rather dramatic effects from Trump-era revisions made to the federal overtime threshold. Tell us about that, please. What does that mean in real people's lives? Well, I mean, the, the, the federal overtime threshold, uh, which has for decades, uh, been about $23,000, which means if you make more than $23,000, you're considered, uh, you know, a managerial supervisory employee, regardless of your actual, um, you know, position in your place of employment, and you're ineligible to receive overtime for working more than 40 hours a week. So this income threshold basically meant that, you know, overtime was restricted to a very small, uh, coverage of federal overtime law was restricted to a pretty small uh, segment of the workforce. The Obama administration recognized this, and you know, on on uh, the advice of of uh, a number of progressive economists, doubled the threshold uh, and a proposed rule that would have pushed it up to forty six thousand um, dollars, and dramatically increased the coverage of federal overtime law. Um, this was a, a pending rule when Trump took office, and one of his uh, you know first actions was to uh, knock the feet out from under it, roll it back to thirty five thousand dollars. Uh, which is uh, what eventually passed a few months ago. Um, and so this, you know, basically, um, you know, takes a few million workers out of uh, federal overtime uh, coverage and leaves them, again, at the mercy of, you know, near dictatorial employment control or employer control in terms of the ability of employers to say, no, you know, uh, you're a salaried employee and you can work 60 hours this week uh, if mm-hmm. I have to do Mm-hmm. Well, that does really have its effects. People, I think, are probably not all that aware of it, but affects a lot of people. And uh, you point yeah. out that, quote, Trump has waded into the social policy debate as if it were 1996, dredging up old canards about shirkers and cheats, fraud and waste. And that picture has resonated with many white working class people. You quote David Super, I don't know who that is, as noting that the only thing unifying its policies on poverty is cruelty. I think that's a very apt quote. Who is he? And can the Trump policy on welfare and assistance to the poor really be described that way? I mean, it, it, there must be some actual economic arguments, or is it just plain cruelty? What, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, David Super is a law professor at uh, Georgetown University. He's worked uh, for much of his career on um, uh, social welfare issues. Uh, and, you know, I think what he's in part pointing to um, is that, you know, the the justification floated uh, by the uh, Trump administration, there's sort of twofold justification for uh, cuts to social programs. One is that uh, it's costing us a lot of money and the money is being wasted. And the other uh, that it has all of the wrong incentives and actually encourages people to rely upon the state. Uh, both of those are demonstrably false. 
uh, and all of the social policy research, particularly since the welfare reforms of 1996, have uh, made it very clear that, you know, first of all, this is a drop in the bucket in terms of federal spending, that you're not going to balance the budget on the back of food stamps. And secondly, that, you know, we have a, a, a lean and mean uh, social welfare system in which the benefits flow to those who genuinely need them. Uh-huh. They should flow to a lot more people, but uh, it's very difficult, uh, you know, to, to make a, uh, a credible argument uh, that someone is leeching off the system. And nevertheless, you know, what the Trump administration has come up with in a, in a, in a couple of big white papers that came out about a year and a half ago is they've dredged up this argument, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, Charles Murray and others from the, from the last big welfare debate. Uh, that's that somehow uh, you know people are losing their souls because uh, you know because they're buying rice with food stamps. Yeah, and and to to make it you know the uh, the makers and the takers that's very simplistic uh, argument. I remember uh, Reagan used to talk about uh, welfare cheats, and and that you know it it doesn't really bring in that much money, and it's not like these people are living high on the hog, as it were. And he, Trump is not the first guy to be doing this stuff. One of the things, frankly, I criticized about Bill Clinton, uh, that his welfare reform, uh, and it may be a good selling point to require work requirement for continued Medicaid eligibility or coverage. And, and you say that work requirements invite callous discretion and sy- systemic discrimination. So talk about that, the, the work requirements. It, it sounds good. Yeah, make people work before they get uh, any kind of benefits. Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, I mean, a couple of things here. I mean, first, first of all, you have to recognize that in many instances, and this is certainly true of Medicaid, people rely on these programs because they cannot work, because they have chronic illnesses, they have chronic disabilities, they have uh, you know, sustained commitments to take care of aging parents, to care for their own children. Uh, and other family members, um, you know, that as, as social policy scholars started to look into, well, what would be the impact of these work requirements? They found that, the, you know, the share of Medicaid uh, recipients who would be subject to them was actually very small. You know, what the Medicaid work requirements really is, is another attack on Obamacare. Because what Trump is taking and his, and his compatriots are taking aim at is the Medicaid expansion which in about half the states opened up the Medicaid program to uh, able-bodied adults uh, with low incomes who um, uh, didn't have access to uh, either exchange health care plans or employment-based plans. So it's just a sort of end-run around um, Medicaid expansion, trying to then take away the coverage from those uh, who, who want it under state expansion of Medicaid. But the other thing that we know about devolution of, a, of authority and this sort of uh, a social policy is built around stringent rules and sanctions is that, you know, at the, at the local level where these policies are administered, they're administered in sort of grotesquely uh, unfair terms. This is particularly true if you look at the sort of racial distribution of sanctions for not working uh, under TANF or, or other programs. And so we have no confidence whatsoever that, you know, even if you accepted the premise of the work requirements, 
that they would be administered in a way that's at all fair. Right. I'm reminded of Stalin's uh, phrase, somewhat related. It's it's not uh, who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes that counts and how it, uh, it gets distributed that way. And yeah. there's no secret that Obama has been obsessed with Obama. He's declared war on all things Obama, not the least of which, of course, is the Affordable Care Act. And he's been trying to, as you say, sabotage it. How has the administration's hostility to the ACA already had a negative impact on people? What specific ways? Um, well, uh, so the Medicaid work requirements tax the expansion. Uh, and then one of the major changes in the uh, tax law in 2017 was alongside all the cuts, uh, the new tax law also um, declared the tax-based uh, penalty for not getting health insurance, the so-called individual mandate. It also said that it would not enforce that, that that was now off the table. And what this did is it, it cut the legs out from under uh, the sort of constitutional defense of the ACA as an extension of Congress's taxing power. And now there are two courts, or two cases winding through the federal courts, which basically say that if you're not going to enforce the tax penalty, there is no individual mandate, there is no extension of Congress's power to tax, so the whole thing is unconstitutional. And then on top of that, you know, what the administration has done is they basically uh, devoted no resources whatsoever to promoting the ACA, yeah. to, to uh, maintaining the exchanges that... Uh, allow people to sign up and that sort of thing. And so the cost of the plans, uh, and, they, and they've done, uh, also withdrawn um, all sorts of subsidies for insurers to, uh, to offer plans in the exchanges. So, you know, the plans are harder to get. Yep. Uh, they're more expensive. Uh, there are a number of states, uh, Iowa is one of them, where there's no real competition on the exchange, and there are parts of the state in which you can't even find a plan. Uh, uh, even if you qualify for the ACA. So it's you know, sort of death by a thousand cuts. I, I don't see how that helps the economy, quite frankly. I mean, it puts more money in the insurance companies' pockets, but I, how one can argue for that is, is good for the economy, boy, it's beyond me. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about inequality in the Trump era, the realities of it, wh how it's really affecting people, and what they have done. Our, our guest is a, a professor of history at University of Iowa, Colin Gordon. And the Trump and McConnell gang's number one goal, of course, is the courts, appointing right-wing judges throughout the federal judicial system. And as you say, fortunately, the courts have blocked or slowed the implementation of this cruelty. But... Uh, the the courts and and filling them up. How has that uh, exacerbated cruelty and uh, made it so that uh, you know economic inequality is just uh, continuously worsened? What the the power of the courts on uh, the economic inequality? Your comments? Yeah, that, I mean it is quite frightening because uh, you know the the administration has been uh, very aggressive, very active in filling the bench, and also very sort of uh, craven in picking uh, some, you know, starkly uh, unqualified, um, but, you know, ideologically copacetic uh, appointees to the federal, to the federal bench. Uh, you know, the one part in, in my piece that I do point out that the courts have sort of slowed this cruelty is that, you know, federal courts 
have repeatedly struck down efforts by states, including Arkansas and Kentucky, to um, attach these work requirements to Medicaid. Because, you know, as the courts, as these federal courts pointed out now in, in sort of three landmark decisions, states are granted uh, waivers by the federal government to experiment with Medicaid only if it extends the original purpose of the act, which is to provide more coverage to more people. And because this, these, these uh, work requirements do the exact opposite, the courts have quite rightly said uh, this will not fly because you're actually using this sort of demonstration waiver program uh, under Medicaid to undercut the law uh, and not make it work better. And, you know, the, the courts, people don't often think about that when they vote, the, the effect of the courts, but that's the focus of, of the, uh, the corporate right uh, to, uh, you know, just make the, make the uh, super rich even wealthier now. And it's, it's not good for the economy. How, how does, I mean, I'm not sure if a lot of people really care that there's, you know, a few unbelievably rich and a lot of people who aren't. How does that hurt America? How does that hurt our, our national security, if you will, in, you know, in, in whatever d- terms you might want to define national security? Does it really matter that there's you know, this uh, gilded age, that there's this small, you know, incredibly rich? How does that hurt our economy? What's, you know, in simpler terms, what's wrong with that? Why, ca- why can't people just say, yeah, well, that's the way it is? Yeah, I mean, I think, and and put simply in those terms, you know, why can't people get filthy rich off extraordinary innovations or inventions? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, more power to them. Yeah. But, you know, the problem posed by our growing inequality is more complicated than that. Because, you know, you can imagine, I mean, if inequality is just a gap between the rich and the poor, but you can imagine a society in which uh, the incomes of both are growing fairly rapidly. And so that even the very poor were able to sustain themselves and their families quite comfortably. Mm -hmm. That's a form of inequality that I think would be less troubling to people. But if you imagine or recognize uh, the actual economy in which we live, in which, you know, the, the tremendous gains being made at the top are actually coming at the expense of both those at the bottom and of the broader middle class, then you have a problem. Because, you know, as now a wide array of economists have pointed out, including, you know, leading economists at the International Monetary Fund, unequal economies like the United States grow more slowly. They're much less robust than ones with a narrow range of distribution. Because we live in uh, a consumption-based economy and at the end of the day, there's only too many, you know, so many pairs of shoes and so many cars that Jeff Bezos can buy. Yeah. You know, this was in some respect the, you know, the insight of Henry Ford in 1914 when, you know, he established the $5 a day because he wanted his workers to be able to buy the cars that his factories produced. Demand side. But, you know, as Joseph Stiglitz and many others have pointed out, you know, we're uh, well on our way to creating an economy in which... Uh, you know, the sort of prosperous core, what we used to call the middle class, is evaporating. It's a little bit hard to see how even those at the very top can uh, sustain their incomes and sustain their grotesque share of the economy if the economy 
you know, as a machine, as a unit, ceases to operate uh, in ways that we're accustomed. Yeah, you got to buy, I mean, you have to have demand <laughs> for people to sell exactly. things. Yeah. And, and adjusting that, I think, I mean, it hasn't been done really. I mean, uh, certainly Franklin Roosevelt addressed uh, demand and, and stimulating demand, but... As you say, defeating Trump will only get us so far. The Democrats have not, outside of campaign season, offered serious and equitable alternatives. Is that true for all presidential candidates right now, do you think? Um, no, but I mean, you know, the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. I mean, yeah. you know, people will say things on the stump uh, that uh, they uh, will not or perhaps cannot uh, actually put into place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's pretty going to be... Uh, you know, even the most uh, progressive candidate, you know, if Sanders or Warren uh, manages to win this thing, there's a lot of tough sledding ahead. You know, not to mention the fact that, you know, or, or, you know, historically starting with the fact um, that, you know, in the wake of the tax cuts, you have uh, federal governments uh, that starved the revenue, um, you know, a court system, uh, which yeah. uh, by that point is, is uh, not going to be particularly kind to any sort of dramatic uh, turns in public policy. Mm. It can take a long time to turn this ship around, mm. uh, but I think we really better get started. Well, it looks like that one effort is being made to uh, start to right the ship, something called the Millionaire's Surtax, proposed by Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland and Don Beyer of Virginia, representative, would add 10 percentage points to the top income tax rate paid on income over $2 million for couples and $1 million for individuals. And it affects only the nation's 0.2% richest taxpayers, but it would raise an estimated $635 billion over 10 years, uh, money that could be used to expand health care, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some initiatives th that are going on. And I do find it interesting that... Uh, Trump has said for a long time he loves uneducated people. His popularity depends on it. And Republicans have been systematically defunding public education, as you write. Instead of leveling opportunity, our schools instead enhance and entrench existing social and economic hierarchies. Investing in schools, it just seems to me, you know, Trump doesn't want it. It must be a good thing to do. So we're not entirely w w without uh, hope. Uh, do you sense that this issue of of extreme economic inequality is, is picking up, and could we be nearing a tipping point in uh, public opinion? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's really a matter of uh, a tipping point. I mean, I think many of the things that we've been talking about, um, many, uh, you know, can be leveraged uh, in ways. Um, I mean, I think, it, it, you, know, the, the, you know, the millionaire's tax is, uh, is a good example. I mean, on the one hand, you know, if you pitch it a certain way and say, should we all pay less taxes, you end up with the Trump tax cut uh, and not a lot of sort of sustained opposition to it. Right. Uh, but if, on the other hand, you say, you know, should the tax distribution be more fair, right. uh, then you do get a support for uh, a more progressive tax system or one with a surtax on uh, higher income. So I think it's, uh, I mean, I don't mean to be too gloomy about this. Uh, I mean, be the realistic. institutional and the fiscal realities are pretty stark. But I also think um, that, you know, the vast majority of uh, the American public are, when push comes to shove, uh, on our side. And it's a matter of uh, uh, political leadership, political courage. Um, and, uh, you know, one hopes uh, some of that will come through uh, this campaign season. 
Boy, I, I sure hope so. I think it's starting to. Just one quick one. How different is Trump? I mean, this stuff has been going on for a long, long time. It certainly, as you say, precedes Trump. How different is he? Or is he just more extreme in his in his cruelty on it? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the tax cut, you know, and so the high, highest earners are now paying the lowest rate that they've right. paid in the, uh, you know, since almost World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really just a continuation. I mean, I think the, the appropriate yeah. way to think about Trump is just is just to think about him, as I say in the article, just sort of doubling down on the basic decisions we've been making: <laughs> weakening workers' rights, undercutting or shredding the social safety net, uh, cutting taxes, and then claiming we're broke and turning around and doing it all over again. <laughs> Uh, this is this is something that we've done pretty much unbroken since the 1970s. Oh, great! Um, and you know, Trump in in many respects is less guarded, less apologetic, uh, more uh, brazen and cruel about it. But that doesn't make it new. <laughs> yeah, he does seem to love cruelty. But you're right; it's not really so new. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff and other good articles, I presume people can look at Dissent Magazine. I don't know. Any other places you can point them to? Um, I write occasionally for a Jacobin magazine, oh, yeah. um, which I think also has uh, good coverage of, uh, of these issues. Indeed it does. Thank you so much for being with us and shedding some light into this uh, complex bowl of spaghetti. Thank you. Great. Great to talk to you.